Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. As we've all heard, there, there are growing calls among our political elites in Washington uh, that the United States, to quote, do something about preventing a Russian invasion of the Ukraine. But after Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, haven't they learned anything about America's appetite to pursue foreign adventures thousands of miles from home? There's so many questions about this. Uh, one of them is, do we even have the military capabilities today. Uh, does Ukraine matter? Uh, how do the Ukrainian people feel? Do they care? Uh, are we pushing China and Russia to make common cause with each other? And what do we really know about their leaders? Uh, who's Vladimir Putin? Who is Xi Jinping? To get some answers to these and many, many other questions I have are two seasoned national security analysts and returning guests, Peter Pry and Mike Waller, and I've asked them to weigh in. Uh, J. Michael Waller, PhD, is a senior analyst for strategy at the Center for Security Policy. And Dr. Peter Vincent Fry is the executive director of the EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security. Both have written extensively, provocatively, and, and in a very smart way on a whole range of national security issues. Uh, recently, and he's very much in the minority on this. Peter has called for making peace, not war with Russia. And Mike has written a fascinating profile. The title is Nursing Injustices, an unsparing psychological profile of Vladimir Putin. Mike, I can't wait to hear more about that. <laughs> Peter, uh, you know, let, let's talk about your view about what we ought to be doing with Russia right now. In terms of the Ukrainian crisis, I think we have to start with uh, you know, what is the overall geostrategic situation that the United States faces. And people talk about uh, our position in Ukraine pushing Russia and China together. I guess closer together might be a way of phrasing it because Russia and China are already an alliance and that poses the most formidable combination that uh, the Western democracies have ever faced in their history. It's more formidable than the access of World War II, the alliance between Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Not only is there, uh, in effect, a, a de facto alliance, in fact, it's a formal one. They have actually signed uh, treaties, in effect, making them uh, uh, an alliance. Uh, you know, but part of this combination I, is uh, North Korea and Iran. Uh, this is the new power block in Washington you know, just doesn't seem to acknowledge it. They've started to wake up to the fact that this power block has been around, uh, exists because as they think about supporting Ukraine against the Russian invasion, it has occurred to some in NATO and some in Washington that China might simultaneously attack Taiwan and then would be confronted with a two-theater war. And we can't, uh, and we can't win a two-theater war. And in fact, we can't even win a one-theater war if you're talking about Taiwan or, uh, or, or the Ukrainian situation. Our own calculations 
from the Pentagon and RAND show that uh, Russia can overrun Ukraine and the frontline NATO states in 72 hours. Uh, we've had 18 war games. Uh, the Pentagon, Pentagon's own war games and Taiwan scenarios, and we have lost every one of them uh, versus, and this shouldn't be surprising because Taiwan and Ukraine are in the backyards of Russia and China. And we would be having to project power over the Atlantic and Pacific oceans into the main strength, into the very teeth. It would be like a charge of the light brigade, you know, against uh, these two superpowers who are allies, uh, you know, and it's been an alliance that's been around for more than a decade, really. Uh, you know, China has become a military superpower uh, because of Russia. You know, it's, it's, it's conventional and uh, increasingly effective nuclear forces are based on Russian technology. Uh, they have exercised together. You know, Vostok 18 was probably the largest military exercise in history. 300,000 troops, 20,000 armored fighting vehicles, hundreds of aircraft, you know, and China was a participant. And that's not the only one. You know, more than a decade ago, uh, Russia and China have conducted strategic nuclear forces operations together, including a, a scenario uh, where they engaged in a joint nuclear war against the United States over Taiwan. So we have been slow to wake up to this and are still not completely aware of it, but the, the main focus of our defense and foreign policy should be this dangerous block, what I call the Sino-Russo axis, you know, in, that we face in the new Cold War. And the object of our policy should be to split this access, you know, to, to, to make peace with Russia, or at least try to turn them into a neutral, you know, so that uh, because together uh, they have such a formidable military and economic combination uh, that we're on the verge of aggression. We're on the verge of wars, both over Ukraine and Taiwan, because they know that we can't win against them. <clears throat> And while people say, well, you know, these are totalitarian and authoritarian states, and, you know, how can they be partners uh, with, with us? Well, Winston Churchill was wise enough during World War II to make common cause with Stalin, Stalin's Russia, you know, <clears throat> uh, you know in order to defeat the common enemy of Nazi Germany. Mike, you, uh, Mike, I'm sorry, Pete, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I want to give Pete, uh, Mike, a chance to weigh in here. He, he founded uh, NATO's Defense Strategic Communications Journal, and so you've got extensive knowledge about NATO. And I guess one of the trigger points for this is the Russia's, or Ukraine's rather, desire to enter NATO as a member, which would be sort of like us having Mexico join uh, join some Russian alliance or something like that. I mean, what, what's your what's your take on this? Well, Ukraine's had 30 years to get its act together as a country, and it's failed. It, this is since 89 when the Soviet Union fell? Yes, since 91, it, yeah. it became independent. Yeah. We wished them well. Uh, we, had, we had fine relations with Russia, we were, but the, the, uh, both the Bush and the Clinton foreign policy establishment couldn't imagine a world without a Soviet Union. Couldn't imagine a Russia without a Communist Party running it, and they actually fought attempts to undermine uh, the USSR, and to prevent Ukraine from becoming independent in the first place. So these are sort of the, the wisest sages of the foreign policy and defense establishment that have been guiding us or misguiding us ever since then. And, and these are the same uh, elements that, are, that want us to have some kind of military commitment 
to Ukraine. The unfortunate thing is Ukraine inherited a strategic nuclear arsenal from the Soviet Union and had it, and under U.S. and other Western pressure and false promises of defense, Ukraine unilaterally surrendered its nuclear arsenal to Russia. Now, the United States under President Clinton promised to defend Ukraine's territorial integrity if it would disarm unilaterally. So imagine we're getting Ukraine to give up its nuclear deterrent, or potential one that it could have assumed command and control of, in exchange for, the, for committing ourselves to its defense. Now, it's not a treaty, so it's just a memorandum. But we've been proceeding on this notion, and then Ukraine has had all this time to build what Finland has done and what the Swiss have done and others have done in their own defense as foreign countries, and that is to have a partisan warfare capability to sort of be a porcupine that Russia would have to swallow were Russia to invade, and even to take an insurgency into Russian territory where it, well, it Ukraine's the largest, the second largest country in, in Europe by size, second only to Russia, as I understand it. Right. And it's the poorest country in Europe by far. And you look at the map, it's snuggled right up there with, with greater, with Russia. Haven't they culturally been part of Russia for, for, for hundreds of years? I mean, is this something that, that my, I asked this question, will the Ukrainians care if, if, if Russians come in? And I mean, how much, how big of a crisis is this? And do we really need to uh, move on to something more important? Well, we have to ask, what is our strategic interest? Well, and I don't really see one that would cause us to need to have hostilities with Russia. I'm all for selling Ukraine as much weaponry as it needs for its defensive purposes. I see no problem with that at all. Well, my, uh, Peter, how do, we, how do we get Vladimir Putin to start thinking about us in a different way? I mean, it's one thing to say we want to stop a Sino-Russo Russo alliance, but I think that's right. How do you do it? Uh, to answer a question, one of the questions you'd asked about Ukraine and its history, uh, you know, one could argue, and the Russians have argued, that you, you, Ukraine is actually the Russian homeland. You yeah. know, because uh, if you go back, you know, to like 1000 AD, uh, you know, it, uh, Russia originated with the Kievan Rus. You know, Kiev is the modern capital of Ukraine, and they were called the Kievan Rus at that time. And it was, it was only later that their empire expanded outward to include the areas that are now Moscow and St. Petersburg. But it started with what is now, what is now Ukraine. And um, the, uh, how do we get Vladimir Putin to uh, uh, come to our side? Uh, I, when you go down to six demands, and I know I'm not going to earn friends with this, but NATO and, uh, uh, and uh, Washington, the Biden. I'm sorry, refresh my recollection. The six demands are. Uh, what? Yeah, Russia's uh, six demands here. I've got them. The first one is not to expand NATO further east and not to allow Ukraine to become part of the uh, uh, to become part of NATO. Uh, <clears throat> I don't have them in right. Well, you don't have to pull them up, but they're 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 Putin's they're Putin's demands. He, he's, these are his demands right now, and we're supposed to accede yeah, to It's the peace treaty. Okay. okay. Before, during this crisis, the Russians put forward what they call a peace treaty. They gave it to every member of NATO, including the United States. And it has six demands. 
NATO must not accept new members, including Ukraine. The US and NATO must not deploy short or immediate range missiles within range of Russian territory. The US not, must not station nuclear weapons abroad. NATO must not deploy forces or arms to member states that joined after the so-called Founding Act of May 1997. This includes all former Warsaw Pact states such as Poland, as well as the formerly Soviet Baltic states. NATO must not conduct military exercises above the brigade level, 3,000 to 5,000 troops within an agreed upon buffer zone. And the US must agree not to cooperate militarily with post-Soviet countries. <clears throat> and this has been rejected out of hand uh, and characterized as basically uh, uh, surrender that we're, they're asking uh, NATO and the United States to surrender to Russia uh, and it would constitute a bloodless victory. And maybe that's true, but to be honest, uh, you know, first of all, uh, uh, each of these points can be negotiated and many of these points are more in our interests than they are in Russia's interests. I do not think these demands are unreasonable, you know, to take the first and the most important one. And we might be able to defuse the crisis if we were simply to uh, agree to that, which is we're not going to let Ukraine into NATO and we're not going to expand NATO further east. You know, when I was a, a young man and a staffer on the House Armed Services Committee, my portfolio was NATO enlargement. And they, uh, you know, this is before these countries came into NATO. And uh, I was sent on frequent trips to visit all of the countries that are now in Eastern Europe that are now NATO member states to confer with their political military leaders and to see, you know, what are they going to bring into the alliance? And uh, I had recommended to the late great Floyd Spence, who was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee at the time, uh, you know, that we should not expand NATO further east. You know, that the, none of these countries was gonna bring anything to the alliance. U.S. vital interests weren't at stake in any of these countries, uh, that it, it was going to guarantee someday a new Cold War with Russia. That if we wanted to get in a new Cold War with Russia, the world's greatest nuclear superpower, then we should expand NATO further eastward. You know, we can't defend any of these countries. We can't project power to defend any of these countries in, uh, that are uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, we have, the only way we can defend them is with nuclear weapons. And so in effect, by expanding NATO in that direction, we're committing the United States to a possible nuclear war for the sovereignty of countries like Latvia and Lithuania and uh, Estonia. And if we were to bring, or Ukraine, if they were to come into, into NATO. And uh, one should not promise to go to nuclear war for a country that most Americans can't find on a map. So it was never in our interests to expand eastward anyway. And so I think that this, uh, the, uh, the other NATOs, there's a thing called, most Americans haven't heard of it, but it's called the Partnership for Peace. It's sort of an interim step toward becoming a NATO member state. And if you look at who are the members of the Partnership for Peace, well, it includes Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, all these countries in Central Asia that'll go all the, all, almost all the way to China. And so if you, have a, if you are from a strategic culture of paranoia in a nation that has been repeatedly invaded over, over many centuries like Russia, and you see, oh, all of these former Soviet territories are now in the partnership for peace, you know, what, it's uh, under, entirely understandable that, they, that Russia sees itself as uh, possibly being surrounded by NATO and that our intentions are not benign, 
but that we eventually plan to destroy Russia. And, and Russian Russia. leaders have felt that way for a thousand years. I mean, it, it operates on a, on a vast plain that's got no natural geographic protection. So if you're a strong leader of Russia, you're, you're, your marching orders are expand, 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 not let people come in closer and closer. I'm here with uh, Mike Waller and Peter Pry, and we're talking about what's at stake in Ukraine, and, and uh, there's a lot to it. And Mike, why don't you... Each of these six demands, and actually make a case as to why the United States, why it's in our interests, too, to, to meet one of those demands. Okay, Mike, uh, would you uh, amplify? Well, first, Peter has some great points, and, right. I, and I agree with a lot of them, but I don't agree that we should ever have the Russians dictate, quote, demands to us. They certainly weren't dictating these demands when we had a, a strong president. What, why might, what one might say about his actual strategy is different, but... The, when when Trump a, was president, when you have a president with they such weren't doing cognitive, it. we have Biden in president, disability, and they're taking advantage of exactly this. the same I'll way say it if Stalin you can. did with with FDR at Yalta. Yalta was was suffering from dementia; he couldn't remember or understand the things that he was signing. He had himself surrounded with Soviet agents like Alger Hiss and Harry Dexter White, and and Harry Hopkins and others, who were designing the whole plan for what became the Cold War, to give Stalin what he wanted. Now you have, you know, Putin's not a Stalin by any means, I'm not saying that, but Biden is an FDR in the sense that he has people with really sketchy connections surrounding him. I mean, the state, Secretary of State, whose stepfather who raised him was, was the general counsel to a KGB agent, Armand Hammer, a CIA director who kept a portrait of Soviet spy Alger Hiss on his wall at the Carnegie Endowment. I mean, these are... That's our, the, current, that's our, that's our, our current, current CIA, CIA director. director. Yeah. What's his Burns. name? Okay. All right. Now, that's not to say he is one, but the fact that he was content to run an organization to keep a Soviet spy's portrait on the wall, that's a problem. So what, does this, what signal does this send to somebody like Putin? That he can push us around. So we can't allow ourselves to be pushed around under this weak compromised leadership, and then where you have a president whose own family has been corrupted by a Ukrainian company whose business model was buying gas from Russia. Well, you know, I've, this show, I've, I've, sometimes I frame it as a, we're, we're talking about the enemy without and the enemy within, and the enemy within are the kind of people you're talking about that are in most of the departments in government that don't much like this country. And so I'm, I'm sort of interested, Peter, you know, you, your thoughts about this, because it's not exactly like United, people within the United States defense establishment are, are wholly aligned in terms of protecting uh, freedom, a constitutional limited government in America. And in fact, they, they very often make common cause with the other side. And we're talking about Russia now, but if you look at what's happening with China, and the love affair that most of our tech oligarchs have with uh, with President Xi and China, uh, I mean, it's sometimes you wonder who in this country's on our side. So can you negotiate the kind of thing we're talking about when we got a very, very soft uh, uh, foreign policy and, in fact, you know, government establishment in, in D.C.? Well, the Biden administration is weak, and I'm not sure that you can put iron in their spine. Uh, you know, and 
Uh, and I think that the Russians, if they follow the course that, uh, that Washington, I mean, if the Biden administration follows the course that I'm recommending, you know, I think we will get taken to the cleaners again. You know, it's also true, by the way, that under Republican administrations, we often get taken to the cleaners on these arms control agreements, you know, that, uh, that the Russians invariably cheat on. You know, so the, uh, the Republicans don't have a monopoly on strength and wisdom when it comes to dealing with Russia. I mean, I, I just take it as a given that the, that the Biden administration is probably going to do bad job and will get pushed around, uh, you know, especially because we've chosen to make Ukraine an issue, an issue where we cannot win. Uh, you know, uh, but I want to keep the conflict the dis, uh, between us, the, the tension between uh, the United States and Russia at the level of diplomacy, you know, I don't want to see this thing uh, turning into a war uh, the, uh, that, that brings in the United States. It has potential uh, to escalate into a nuclear war. You know, even General Flynn has written recently about how it could escalate into a nuclear war that could kill hundreds of millions of people. I don't agree that we should be sending arms to Ukraine, but certainly not at this time. You know, that that sends the, exactly the wrong message to Russia and will heighten their suspicion that we do intend to bring Ukraine into NATO. Why are we making such a fuss over Ukrainian sovereignty and arming them to the teeth, uh, you know, if we don't intend to make them a NATO member state? That's how they're going to think about it. And what will happen if we, if we arm the Ukrainians enough so that they do cost the Russians a lot of blood? You know, in Russian military doctrine, they believe in early nuclear first use if they get in trouble with conventional forces. That, that could mean the use of tactical nuclear weapons against the Ukrainians. What if the Ukrainian army is strengthened enough so that the Russians can't achieve a quick victory, but the Ukrainians end up executing a fighting retreat into Romania or Poland or other neighboring NATO states? Where are where are the Ukrainians themselves in all this? I asked the question at the outset here. I mean, you you point out it's really been part of Russia for a thousand years, or certainly there's a close relationship. And I encourage everybody to actually look at a map to see what Ukraine looks like on the map because it sits there right next to it, and Moscow's not very far away, 150 miles, 200 miles. If Ukraine joins NATO. Uh, Russia will have a NATO member state within 300 miles of Moscow. You know, they spent 20 to 30 million lives during World War II to push the Nazis out of that area and out of these other areas that are called the bloodlands in Eastern Europe. So just imagine from their perspective, I mean, this is within loving memory of some Russians, and it's certainly taught at the General Staff Academy, the Operation Barbarossa, and how close the Soviet Union and Russia came to extinction because of the, the, the presence of uh, Adversary military forces. Yeah, Bar Barbarossa was 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 Hitler's uh, thrust into into Russia. What they stop at just uh, twenty miles short of the the city line of, of Moscow. Right. right. The last step in Bar Operation Barbarossa to launch pincers toward Moscow originated from that part of Ukraine. Uh, you know, so uh, you know it puts them from their point of view, uh, and you know that puts NATO you know, within easy distance for making surprise attack by missiles and aircraft and tank armies if that happens. Now, from our point of view, that's ridiculously paranoid. America doesn't even, the NATO alliance doesn't even have the military wherewithal to launch an invasion of Russia, nor do we have such intentions. But their own strategic culture is one of uh, 
of paranoia, you know, and so they see threats everywhere. But I would add that our strategic culture is what I would call dysfunctional optimism. You know, we can't understand that <laughs> other states might see us as a threat. We're the good guys. We don't do nuclear Pearl Harbors or Pearl Harbors of any kind. So how can anybody object to, you know, uh, us having a partnership for peace or expanding NATO into Eastern Europe? Uh, that was the attitude. Uh, that was uh, that was the attitude. And and this this is a very dangerous combination to have one civilization that is uh, dysfunctionally optimistic and can't see how what they're doing could provoke a world war up against another strategic culture, which is deeply paranoid and, uh, and, and, and sees threat, threats everywhere. This is not a wise thing for us to be sending arms to Ukraine, uh, you know, when, when Russia uh, uh, is not only a nuclear superpower, but what I would also call a cyber warfare superpower. Uh, I've written articles also warning how, uh, you know, they could shut down our electric grid with cyber and EMP attacks and probably will do so prior to not necessarily our grid, but if they think that this situation could expand to involve NATO and the United States in a, in a war, uh, they may well attempt to preempt us with that kind of an attack. This is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm talking with Peter Pry and, and Mike Waller about Ukraine and, and why on earth we would want to go in there and what, uh, what might happen. And I'm uh, Peter's coined a, phrase, coined a term about our defense establishment uh, characterized with we, we call it dis dysfunctional optimism, and that we're the good guys, and and why could anybody think we'd be we'd be the enemy? Mike, you're you're close to the, and we've also talked about the deeply paranoid culture in, in Russia. Is that the same under Putin? Is it made worse under Putin because of his personality, or is it just? I mean, you can hardly characterize the, the Stalin's uh, Soviet Union as a as a happy place. What, what's changed in Russia? Is this an eternal thing we're going to have to deal with, or can we think about it some other way? Well, paranoia and insularity are part of the Russian national character and have always been, apart from when they were communists and they had an internationalist character to spread communism. In terms of their own affairs, they were always very insular. Uh, Putin undid the openness that Gorbachev had begun and Boris Yeltsin the Russian leader who seceded Russia from the USSR continued. Um, but Yeltsin needed, didn't have a political party of his own. He didn't really know anything about how democratic governance worked. So he placed his, his, his uh, whole presidency in the hands of the former KGB. And that's how Putin was brought in. Well, your doctoral dissertation predicted that the KGB would end up running Russia. Right. That was in the early 90s. Okay. Yeah. So I was over there at the time. I was in the Kremlin the day the Russia seceded from the Soviet Union. So I got to watch the whole thing really yeah. close and up front. Yeah. And I, I interacted with a lot of people who were in the KGB or freshly out of the KGB or who had been victims of the KGB and, and uh, with Russian reformers who had wanted to do something about taking control of the KGB and, and pulling it out by the roots. That was never done. So every Russian leader has relied on the former KGB and continues to, as Putin personifies, because that's what they know for keeping control. So that it's a very centralized government that sucks all the wealth and innovation and everything else from all of the regions to keep the center in power. And that's Vladimir Putin 
who is a creature of that organization, the KGB. He's got, he speaks with great affection for the old uh, Czechisti, which was the, the Cheka, which was the Bolshevik secret police. So that was a communist secret police, but for Putin it was a Russian secret police. And he was still- Was that Beria? That was pre-Beria. Pre well, Beria had been, had been uh, uh, he was alive then, but he wasn't in it. Beria came much later. Yeah. This was Felix Druszynski who founded it. Uh, Zhuzinski's birthday is on September 11th, which, so September 11th has a very different meaning to a guy like Putin than it does to us. He officially observes the birthday of the founder of the Bolshevik secret police. Every December 20th, he still celebrates as State Security Workers Day, which was the anniversary of the founding of the Bolshevik Cheka. So this is part of Putin's personality and his whole professional um, being. The... You mentioned, Peter, that I don't think most, you've written extensively in cyber warfare and EMP and the various ways that a modern war would actually happen. And there's this naive notion that we could go to war someplace like Ukraine and there wouldn't be some countermeasure here in the United States in the form of cyber warfare of some type. That's not, that's not only a risk with uh, Russia, but it's very much a risk with China, who has probably even greater capabilities to wage that kind of warfare. Do you want to amplify on that? Sure. Uh, in fact, I published a book uh, last year uh, called uh, Blackout Warfare. that talks about these. Uh, it's the first book published in the West that talks about how the, our adversaries, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, think about and plan for uh, cyber EMP warfare. I call it uh, uh, they have diff many different names for it, cyber warfare, you know, contact warfare, electronic warfare, information warfare. It's all the same thing that involves a combination of what we consider cyber attacks, computer viruses, bugs, and logic bombs. Uh, when we think of cyber warfare, that's what we think it's limited to. Uh, but, for the, but for all these other adversaries, they have a much more sophisticated approach. <clears throat> And it's a combined arms approach so that to them, cyber warfare includes physical sabotage by small teams of, uh, of specialized troops going in and shooting up extra high voltage transformers and control centers, non-nuclear EMP weapons, uh, you know, drones that carry non-nuclear EMP generators that can follow, follow power lines and knock them out, including nuke, all the way up to nuclear EMP attack, which they do not consider crossing the nuclear threshold. And they're right when you, if you really understand the physics, you know, because the EMP attack basically just attacks electronics, and there is no radiation. And, and a nuclear, and a, and a nuclear EMP attack would be a high altitude nuclear blast that would knock out the electrical grid. Right, three hundred kilometers high. If you're on the ground directly beneath the explosion, you wouldn't even hear it. Uh, you know, there'd be a, an EMP at the speed of light. That could cover all of North America and put at risk electronics and take out all the critical infrastructures, transportation, communications, everything at the, uh, at the, at the speed of light as a way of paralyzing us. Now, in the long run, an EMP attack, any one of these things could be used to take out the electric grid. You could do it with cyber alone. You could do it with physical sabotage alone, non-nuclear EMP alone, or nuclear EMP alone. But <clears throat> general staffs are conservative military planners you know, and so the combined effects of this make it irresistible. You know, you want every advantage that you can get. They could phase it in and start with cyber and see if that works, and then quickly bring in the sabotage, then escalate to non-nuclear, 
All, it, all of this could be done in less than 24 hours to win a blackout war. And uh, you know, what's an American president going to do when the lights go out all across the nation? And you can't project military power anymore because our military bases, they get 99% of their electricity from the civilian electric grid. Can't project military power. And at the same time, uh, the, the, the water is shut off to people. The food will start spoiling. The clock starts ticking toward mass starvation as a consequence of the blackout. I think a president's highest priority and his constitutional priority should be to rescue the American people. And the bad guys know that. They're, they would be counting on that as well to not only uh, eliminate our ability to project power, but create a situation in our homeland where our interests would be to bring all of the surviving forces remaining to an American president to try to recover from what they've done. And it could escalate to that, to that, to that level. I, I certainly think if Russia invades Ukraine, it's gonna be preceded by a cyber attack on Ukrainian electric grid. They've practiced that every year, you know, for, for, for the past seven years or so, taking out the Ukrainian electric grid. So the idea of Russia lining up a thousand, hundred thousand troops and kind of marching down the highway into Ukraine is not the way this war would be fought. I think that's kind of the people are acting like this is World War II, um, and you're saying this is not. This is World War Three. Now, could we? Well, I think the tanks will go in, but well, they will go after, in. But after they've softened the target, right? And I think that that the effects of that will similarly paralyze the Ukrainian military so that they can probably achieve a pretty quick and relatively bloodless victory. Sure. Mike. Yeah, I, don't, I think Russia doesn't even need to use military force to get its way in Ukraine. One of the big concerns among the people I've talked to past few days in Kiev is Russia sponsoring a coup d'etat against the Ukrainian government. So even a bloodless one. Not, they get their way, they win without fighting, they, they've made their show of force. And then they can do what they want, and they can get a Ukrainian leadership that will just be much more malleable. And that's the it. more likely scenario. That's a scenario. That's okay. what, one of the things. Well, could we could we pivot a bit because I I want to get your view about the other strategic issue, Taiwan, and that to me it looms even larger because I think we've established Ukraine doesn't really matter to the United States, but Taiwan does. I mean, Taiwan's got ninety percent of the semicon high high level semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, done by TSC, Taiwan Semiconductor, and a lot of other strategically important uh, uh, manufacturers and industries. And, and that is a very important uh, country to the United States. It's also very important to China because China imports almost all of its semiconductors. And if you're thinking about pivoting towards China, a couple of quick questions. Do, do, are the cyber warfare capabilities roughly the same with Russia and with China, less, more? And if we talked about Ukraine, if something happened in Taiwan, what are, what's that scenario like? And I think I asked about six questions and either one of you can, can jump in, but I, I'm very interested because I, I, I worry a great deal about Taiwan. People yeah. don't understand how important it is. If you think of cyber warfare as, as it's defined by, by the bad guys, by our ad adversaries, you know, uh, then it's not limited 
to viruses and logic bombs and things like that, but it's a combined arms operation. It includes nuclear all the way up to the nuclear level. Uh, then Russia would be more capable than China in terms of uh, cyber warfare uh, defined as they define it. Uh, nonetheless, China, uh, uh, you know, has a capability to to knock out our electric grid, you know, uh, as well. Uh, the, the Russian capability is greater, but the Chinese can put us into a nationwide blackout too by all of these means. You know, we think they have all of these means. Uh, cyber capabilities, physical sabotage capabilities, all the way up to super EMP weapons. China has got those as well. Even North Korea, frankly, has got a probably got a super EMP weapon. We don't have a super EMP weapon in the U.S. nuclear deterrent. Um, so uh, they're, uh, uh, in terms of the effect from an American perspective, they're an equal threat because once you've destroyed the Russians can make the grid rubble bounce, okay? Uh, and the, Chi the Chinese have a less of a capability to do that, but still a nationwide blackout is a nationwide blackout. And it could be uh, for a protracted period. The Chinese have a capacity that, to compromise our leadership in business, in politics, in communication, in journalism, and uh, education, and everywhere else where we have been blinded not, not to... Not capacity to, they already have. Yes, they've been doing this for decades. Right. Those of us who've talked about it have been anathematized and pushed aside as, as being completely unreasonable. We've been right about all of it. There are so many of our former critics are now agreeing that this has been a problem all along. But where you have a, a Chinese laboratory tied to the People's Liberation Army that... that works with strains of viruses and has been doing things on contract with our some of our health leaders of our own government for years and then this virus is released or escapes from that lab to plague the whole world and you don't have anyone anymore who wants to hold the chinese regime accountable in fact there was a the, the director of national intelligence issued a report last summer uh, the unclassified version said the intelligence community can't find out the origin of the pandemic without help from the Chinese authorities. Meaning our whole intelligence community had no means of ascertaining where the virus came from unless the Chinese government helped us find out where it came from, which it wasn't doing. That's the pathetic state of our intelligence capabilities right now. And then the, and the, and the timid conclusions that our intelligence community is making. So if we can't even assess something like that, that has affected every last person in our country and on earth, what other capabilities don't we have? And the politicians who've been compromised and the, and the senior military figures who've been compromised wanting to be promoted by behaving in a certain way while they wear the stars on their shoulders to get on corporate boards of companies that do business in China. Or, or the, the entrepreneurs and bankers and others on Wall Street who are tied at the completely to the Chinese Communist Party, these huge investment houses that have determined our every last person's economic future here and our own economic security, completely compromised by the Chinese regime. There, so you have decisions that aren't made, intelligence taskings that aren't made, 
policies that aren't even devised and strategies that aren't even devised that make us completely vulnerable to the types of things that Peter's talking about. But you, they don't even need to do it to us because they've compromised us so Could much. you give us an example? Could you give me any, I've got a lot of them, but I'd rather hear from you. But, uh, an example of how they compromise people, a, a person or a, or a strategy? Sure. For example, let's take a, a something visible, an entertainment company. You know, why is Disney pushing Chinese propaganda? Why is it adjusting its entertainment for children in ways to appease the Chinese Communist Party? To what end is that? Part of it is because they want to build a Chinese market. But part of it is the Chinese say, if you do not comply with what we want you to produce and not produce, you know, we will not grant you entry here. And Disney's more than... And that's just that's just an entertainment company. Now think of, of certain defense companies. When you think of, uh, was it Loral that engineers, was it Hughes, Hughes? I don't remember, I want to say the name of the firm. A big American firm. Engineers were giving the Chinese military advice on how to devise a weapon to destroy an American aircraft carrier. And to, 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 to put multiple warheads on an... ICBM. These are American engineers and companies that were doing this long ago. Bankers, think of Wall Street, think of places like BlackRock, think of, think of some of the big investment houses in Wall Street that are so immersed and so, so intertwined with Chinese Communist Party businesses with their phony bookkeeping and, their, and, their, and their, their opaqueness and their fake numbers and they're putting our pensions and our you know, our entire economy intertwined with a completely false uh, Communist Party system of phony companies and fraud, and then they give money to politicians and they tell them how to vote. And you look at the whole New York State delegation, practically, they're all in the banking and finance committees, then governing it, and they're, be, they're governing our national policies that the Wall Street folks are, are funding well, you know, BlackRock, BlackRock Larry Fink is still advising us all to put more of our portfolio in China. Yeah. Even when yeah. you have no idea what the Chinese company's numbers really are. Yeah. But BlackRock's also been invited into China to help it modernize its uh, its uh, investment uh, uh, markets. And, you know, they're lusting after that four or 500 million people with uh, savings dollars because BlackRock wants a piece of that. And so they're willing yeah. to... Put American shareholders into Chinese stocks to please the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, is that the kind of thing? And then we're these, they, about? They, these stocks tank because the companies are just built on pyramid schemes of fraud, and that affects every last one of us. And then you have our media companies. When you have Steve Forbes of all people selling his company to Chinese interests, when you have Chinese Communist Party figures owning parts of our news organizations and selling out to them. When you have even one great media figure who's a hero of mine, Rupert Murdoch, publicly saying that his Chinese-born ex-wife was a communist spy who was sent to try to influence is him. It, is this Wendy Ding? Yeah. yeah. And, and then you've got you know Facebook and Twitter and these social media outlets yeah. that are censoring in ways favorable to the Chinese regime. So it's affecting the perceptions and attitudes um, and, and, and policies of so, our population. So Peter, do you, I mean, I... I I think what Mike's saying, I've based on everything I've done on China and the capital markets and other things related to this show, I, I tend to agree that it's very hard for us to defend American interests 
because so many Americans are making common cause with what used to be our enemy. We still think so. How does that affect some of your strategic uh, advice? I mean, if you've got generals with divided allegiance or other people in government with divided allegiance, doesn't that compromise the kind of strategies that you're, uh, you're advocating? Sure it does. Uh, you know, I'm really concerned that, you know, we're in a civilizational crisis here, all right? And that Republicans and Democrats, uh, the, the business as usual, may not be able to fix it. Uh, free societies are not the norm in world history. Mankind usually lives under tyrannies precisely because systems like ours, you know, uh, free systems like this, you know, uh, are divided among themselves and they focus on their their differences within, as we are deeply divided now, basically having a cold civil war at home. And uh, I mean, whether you look at Athens or Rome or now us, you know, uh, we are our own worst enemy. So my strategy is a strategy of desperation. I'm not saying that the that making peace, not war with Russia is done. Uh, uh, the alternative to making peace with Russia and humiliating peace with Russia, possibly, probably under this administration, is better than the alternative, you know, which is possibly, as General Flynn warns, hundreds of millions of dead in a nuclear war because we don't make peace with Russia. Because we, because we explode the Ukrainian powder keg the way Serbia got exploded in World War I, and it results in a series of cascading unexpected things to bring us into a world war. But let me say this quickly, uh, you know, to complete my thought uh, on this. So I'm not hopeful about the Biden administration and all the corruption being able to uh, achieve the objectives. I'm hoping that a more, a, a more I'm hoping we can come out of the situation that we're in and get more competent political and military leadership in the future that can fix the problems that we that may be created by a, 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 a negotiated peace with Russia where they have taken us to the cleaners and we've made perhaps too many concessions. You know, diplomacy, you're still alive and you can fix the diplom dip diplomatic faults later. But the, one of the biggest things we've got going for us in being able to achieve a peace with Russia and being able to make them a strategic partner so that we so that we don't lose this war with China. And it's a war, whether it involves shooting or not. You know, what we're describing as a form of war, Sun Tzu said the best victory in war is to achieve victory without a battle, to achieve the bloodless victory. But the thing we've got going for us most is that I think Putin is smart enough to understand that a strategic partnership with the West is more in his interest than being allied with China, you know, because China is a bigger threat in the long run to Russia than the United States. And so even though we're a bunch of fools right now, and that might even make us more attractive, that he can manipulate us and, and, and have his way with us right now, I, the strategic partnership between Russia and China has been a lot of ways, I think, from Russia's point of view, a one-way street. I mean, uh, uh, Russia... Russian technology and scientific expertise has helped build China into the superpower that it is today. They, didn't, they really haven't gotten much help from the economic giant that China is, uh, you know, in exchange for that. They also know that, uh, you know, China hungrily eyes Siberia and has, uh, you know, territorial, probably has territorial aspirations. Russia's population is going down. China is a huge, dangerous neighbor with billions of people in it. Uh, you know, 
uh, if Russia and China, if the new Sino-Russo axis prevails and we have a new world order run by them, I think Putin and Russia understands they're going to be the junior partner. And they also probably understand that the way of totalitarian states, the reason they're totalitarian states is they want total control. And the next guy on the hit list after the United States is going to be Russia. Uh, you know, our, 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 our principles of coexistence and respecting sovereignty, if you look at a long run, probably look pretty attractive to Putin, despite the fact that we have a very foolish administration, a very weak administration right now. So Russia's own self-interest is, is probably the best thing we've got going for us. And I, I, I think we might be surprised at how easy it would be to establish a strategic partnership with Russia if we were willing to be reasonable on, on, some, of these, uh, on some of these points and do things like lift the economic sanctions and try to reestablish a uh, strategic partnership with Russia. Hit the reset button again. Mike? Well, only a madman would have policies to drive Russia and China closer together. That's just insanity for any Western leader, especially for the United States, ever to do. So it's in our strategic interest to, to separate Russia as much as possible from China. Uh, Russia's long-term future is pretty bleak in terms of, you know, we just talked about the demographics of the situation, but China is expanding. It needs more space or perceives that it needs more space for its population. And it's Chinese... Uh, merchants who are the real business backbone of much of the Russian Far East already, going back and forth, running the stores and the shops and providing a lot of the work that the Russians can't or won't do, or there are no Russians there to do it. It's only a matter of time before the Chinese population migrates to other areas on land, and Russia is the easiest place And Siberia to to. is, 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 uh, is on the main, the main path? Right. It's right there. It's just north of China, it, yeah. and it's it has it has infrastructure and it has a declining population. So it's a pretty attractive population target for just Chinese to go to to migrate on their own. Let alone if you had a Chinese Communist Party orchestrated migration to there and to places in the Russian interest like Kazakhstan and elsewhere. So so it's really to Russia's benefit to. Uh, get rid of some of its paranoia toward us. And this is one of the things that causes me to wonder, why are these American politicians who were so soft toward Moscow for their entire political careers, giving the Kremlin its way on arms control, uh, making sure the United States never had a national missile defense, uh, making sure we never had adequate counterintelligence, and all of a sudden they're uber hawks against Vladimir Putin. Why? You have to wonder why. Well, no, but I'll, how about an answer? I wonder why. I mean, you know, have got these guys, it's sort, of, sort of like Elmer Fudd. I mean, they've they've determined to be tough guys after all these years, and and they're 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 these little men or little people who are acting like they're uh, they got to be tough now, and it's crazy. It's completely out of character for all of them. And and then anybody who is advocating a third way, se separate Putin from China. You're being accused of being a, a Russian agent. See, it's proof that you're a Trumpy and Trump was working for the Kremlin and therefore you're compromised also. Yeah, but Trump, it, it makes Trump, no, Trump was tough on Putin. I mean, it, but he, he was uncharacteristically quiet about it. That was Putin one of the was things. Quiet about it, no, yeah. Trump was quiet about yeah, he was. it. He was. He did it. And, and he just, usually you'd expect the bluster to come out for Trump to say, this is how tough I am toward Putin. He handled Putin in a very different way and Putin didn't mess with him.
Yeah, I think General Flynn's idea was to uh, was to try to do exactly what I've been describing. I think this was going to be the Trump administration policy to try to drive a wedge between Russia and China to try to lure Russia into a strategic partnership. And Putin was waiting for the offer to come from the Trump administration, but Trump couldn't make the offer, you know, because of all these these allegations that he was a Manchurian candidate, and uh, and and so uh, uh, you know we're in this situation that we're in now. I think part of the explanation as to why we get taken to the cleaners on these arms control treaties, another question from the cyber and EMP point of view, how is it you know, that, that we are not, we haven't hardened our electric grid and our other critical infrastructures from EMP and cyber attack? You know, uh, you know, even though there's an executive order to do it, bills get passed by Congress, uh, uh, there, there isn't an easy answer to that. Um, I was, uh, I, I personally believe that, you know, I think what we can't understate the possibility that we've been deeply penetrated in our, uh, you know, by the other side, by Russian agents, by Chinese agents, by, by people who have divided loyalties. Uh, I'm thinking of Klaus Fuchs, you know, who was a, a Soviet spy that penetrated the Manhattan Project. It was supposed to be the most secure project that we had, but it penetrated it, and many Soviet agents had. And then uh, he proceeded to misinform us, not just send secrets back to the Soviet Union, but to misinform us about nu- on certain nuclear matters wh- while he was there. Uh, just think, I think about how much easier it is to penetrate institutions like the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, uh, the utilities, they don't do polygraphs and background checks on anybody coming into these organizations, you know, that are, are really vital to our national security because they manage our electric grid. Uh, but then on the other hand, I remember that Dr. Graham, you know, who was the chairman of the EMP commission, he was President Reagan's White House science advisor, advisor would always caution me, Peter, never attribute to a conspiracy in Washington that which can be explained by stupidity. The fact of the matter is we we have a lot of Dr. Fauci's working for us in all the fields, whether it's in the State Department, the Defense Department, the Department of Homeland Security, there's a lot of incompetence there. Uh, You know, on our side, you know, you can't fire these people. They're not deep thinkers. At the top, we we change people, you know, uh, with every administration. And, uh, and, and the kind of people that are brought in to do these things are not very impressive people. You know, right now, for example, Wendy Sherman, who is our Deputy Secretary of State, is over there trying to negotiate with Russia, trying to, trying to avert this crisis. And who is Wendy Sherman? It's just one example, you know? Well, she was never trained as a strategist or foreign policy analyst. Her background is as a social worker. She used to run the Department of Child Services for the state of, well, of, of Maryland, and then was the director of Emily's List, you know, which was uh, designed to get women elected who supported abortion to political roles. She became a friend of Bill and Hillary. They put her into high position in the State Department. And from there, she proceeded to give us the agreed framework with North Korea, which actually helped North Korea become a nuclear weapons state, the joint, the Iran nuclear deal, and now we're hoping Wendy Sherman will uh, will uh, will win World War III or 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 be peace on our time. Okay, 
So I expect us to get taken to the cleaners by negotiating with Russia. It's just inevitable with this crowd. But uh, it's better it's better than losing World War III uh, because of, uh, of Wendy Sherman. Uh, you know, a bad deal is better than uh, is better than a war we can't win. So it sounds like the strategy is to just try to avoid catastrophe for the next three years until we can get a new gang in pl- new team in place and hope that that's the right team. Yeah, we need time to rebuild our military power, to rebuild our political military leadership, you know, to, to defend ourselves. I mean, you, you need time to do that. I mean, that's the only way I can see to buy time. Yeah, I it's not a question. Speaking of buying time, we're we're about we're out of time, but I I want to continue, Mike. You get get a, get uh, give us a point of view. Well, we're not at a point now where we can look for the best policy. It's just look for the least damaging policy. Right. Yeah. Well, um, this has been a very sobering Bill Walton show. I'd like to thank Mike Waller and Peter Pry for joining and giving us a very, I think. Uh, clear-eyed view of uh, our foreign policy and the defense establishment and also our prospects in dealing with Ukraine and with Taiwan, China, Russia. Um, we've got a lot more to cover here, and I hope I, I get you. You guys are already returning guests, so we've got to get you returning again. And next time, Peter, we're going to have you in studio so we can uh, have it even more. Um, we miss you. We'd like to have you here. So Peter Pry. Mike Waller, thank you, and thanks for joining the Bill Walton Show, and we'll be back with uh, more on this topic in the not-too-distant future. Uh, you can find our show on thebillwaltonshow.com, on YouTube, on Rumble. We're on Monday nights on CPAC now, uh, 7 o'clock uh, streaming. Also, we're just joining the For America uh, uh, platform, and we'll also be seen uh, there along with all the other podcast platforms. So uh, stay tuned, keep listening, and send us all your good ideas, and we'll try to make shows out of them. So thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.